Okay. So there's two types of urinary tract infections that you'll come across. Upper urinary tract infections and lower urinary tract infections. Upper urinary tract infections will consist, in terms of signs and symptoms, will consist of flank pain, which is that pain like right at the, at the sides and small of your back, obviously where your kidneys are. You might have fever, chills, nausea and vomiting. You may experience a headache and you'll be generally weak. For lower urinary tract infections, also known as cystitis, you'll have decreased urinary output. You'll have urgency, frequency, painful urination, and incontinence. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because if we have a lower urinary tract infection, that's affecting our urethra and our bladder. And if we have an upper urinary tract infection, it's affecting our ureters and kidneys. So that kind of makes sense that those symptoms go along with the areas in which the infection's occurring. Okay, so risk factors. Risk factors, unfortunately for you girls, a risk factor, factor is your female anatomy, okay? And the reason is is because your, your, your um, urethra is so exposed to the external environment, okay? Much more so than a, a, a male anatomy, okay? Um, structural abnormality, if the anatomy of your urinary tract is um, structurally abnormal, like we talked about on Friday where we have our um, nephrostomy tubes, if we're in, uh, interjecting tubes and um, foreign objects in order to uh, get, get urine, um, we are more at risk for urinary tract infections so that way. Um, obstruction, okay, anybody who has an obstruction, whether it be kidney stones, um, gall, um, any type of renal stone, you're gonna be more at risk for developing infection. Chronic diseases, okay, if you're, um, if you're suffering from any kind of chronic disease, and that more brings up, you know, the things like um, your, your immune system is struggling with that chronic disease, so it's not battling off common tract or common infections. Um, chronic diseases can also predispose you to immobility, okay, which also will increase your risk for urinary tract infections and other comorbidities that will increase your risk for urinary tract infections. Age, um, those who are in the earlier times of their lifespan, those are who are in the older times of their lifespan will be more at risk for urinary tract infections and increased sexual intercourse, okay, especially if um, you don't maintain clean habits before, after, during sexual intercourse will predispose you to urinary tract infections. Diagnostic test, a UA is a urine analysis. You pee in a cup, the lab analyzes the urine, it looks for increased white cells, it looks for bacteria, it looks for um, anything abnormal, their specific gravity, all those normalized tests, the pH, all those things that you look at for urine if they're off keto or off balance. A CNS is a culture and sensitivity. Again, another test to look for bacteria um, or any other type of infection that shouldn't be in there. 
about 80 to 90 percent of all urine samples of individuals suffering from a urinary tract infection contain E. coli. Does that make sense to you? It should. Why? Erica. What? Yeah, absolutely. Because E. coli is one of the most common um, bacteria that is in your bowels, so or and that it manifests in your bowel movements. Okay, and because we have an interchange of those systems, you know, if we're not wiping from front to back, little young girls not knowing that, or um, it get we don't adhere to good cleanliness, then that's something that can very much make us predisposed to that, Bridget. Urine analysis. Okay. Okay, so what can we do nursing wise to be able to help um, our, our clients get over urinary tract infections? We make sure we increase the fluids, flush out that system, get all those bacteria out of there. Continual assessment, continually checking the patient for fever making sure nausea and vomit, all those signs and symptoms that we went on, we want to make sure that they are, um, that they are starting to get out of the system. Medications. We will administer medications as prescribed by the physician. Typically, um, one of the most common for urinary tract infections is uh, antibiotics. Sure. Okay? And client teaching on hygiene. Remember, client hygiene is something, now, not every time, because a lot of people take a lot of pride in their cleanliness. And a urinary tract infection does not equal an individual who is not prescribing to clean habits. Okay? So don't get that misconception in your head. However, um, you do want to educate the patient and talk with them about how to maintain clean or, or client hygiene so that they can prevent urinary tract infections in the future. Okay, so we went over any questions about the different forms of how we can have alteration in urination. Okay, everybody understand what can predispose somebody to having a, um, alteration in, their, in the pattern of urination? Okay, we understand what causes it. We have our urinary tract infections, incontinence, etc. Okay, good. So we'll put that to rest. So we went from alteration in urinary elimination. Now we're going to talk about alteration in bowel elimination. We're just loving that. Okay? So now we've understood all these elimination patterns that can come from our body. We've talked about how we can alter our urination in terms of, or our alteration of elimination in terms of urination, and now we're going to talk about alterations in bowel. Okay? We're going to look at, because that's the, we're looking at chronicity this semester, we're going to look at how immobi immobility relates to your inability to defecate or to have a bowel movement. Okay, so how that plays a part, what role that has. We need to look at factors that contribute to elimination patterns, okay? So our positioning, what we eat, how much we drink, etc. okay? Um, we want to look at the, the effects of medications, particularly laxatives, also known as cathartics, um, on elimination patterns. We want to look at bowel training, okay? How, how do we 
what kind of nursing interventions can we do to help promote appropriate bowel elimination patterns? Okay? And we want to promote healthy elimination patterns. Okay? So we don't want somebody to um, feel as though it's an alteration in their life schedule, etc. Okay, so quick quiz here. This is our digestive system. Can anybody tell me what these parts are? Okay, all three of these right here, we have pizza, which is my favorite, going into where? What's this right here? Mouth. What are these two, these two gray pieces right here? Salivary glands, very good. What's this? Okay. Pancreas, very good. Thank woo, who said that? That was thank, very good. Okay, so that's our digestive system. We start at the mouth, okay? Food goes into our mouth, that's the start of our defecation pattern. Okay, our salivary glands produce those juices that will help us to digest our food. We swallow, it goes through our esophagus, into our stomach. We have our liver, we have our um, pancreas, and we have our gallbladder, which all aid in the digestive process. We have our stomach, small intestines, large intestines, where food gets absorbed, sent out to the bloodstream, and whatever's waste, whatever our body doesn't use, is eliminated, okay? That's our review of anatomy. It's really, is that really hard for you guys to see? Do you want me to turn off the lights? Okay. Okay, so some of the things that affect our ability to have a bowel movement or our, affect our bowel function. Age, okay? As we get older, Age is very, um, plays a large role in our ability to have an appropriate bowel movement, okay? What happens in an older adult is that there's a decrease in the um, function of the, of the smooth muscle of the colon, okay? And that decrease or that age-related change can decrease our ability to have control over our elimination patterns, okay? Not only do we have control in, our, um, in the function of our systems, but we have a, dec a decrease in the absorption of our foods and our nutrients in our, in our system. So those types of things can play a part in our elimination patterns. Diet, fiber, proteins, fats, all of those pieces play a role in, in, our, uh, in our bowel patterns. Anybody here not eat maybe McDonald's fast food for maybe months or a year or so, and then all of a sudden you guys go out and you have a Whopper or a quarter pounder with cheese and a large fry? Okay, how do you feel after you like consume all that? It was a mistake. Okay, so your body's like in rejection mode, okay? And that's because your normal dietary pattern has just, that world has just been rocked, okay? Your, your body's saying, what is all this stuff? And it's the alteration in the fats and the proteins in that one meal that your body is, is not understanding. So your body gets used to your diet, it gets used to what you consume. 
and that plays a part in your elimination pattern. Okay? Fluid intake. Fluid is extremely, extremely important in having a healthy and promoting a good elimination pattern in your bowels. How much fluid should an adult have every day? Okay, eight, eight glasses. Okay, about two liters of fluid. Okay, now as I say that, I say two liters of decaffeinated fluid. So the soda, the coffee, the caffeinated tea, all those don't count. Okay? Physical activity, just like we were talking about, we've been talking about this what seems like years now. The more active you are, the more increased your metabolism is, the more increased your movement is, the more increased the peristalsis within your digestive system will be. The more regular your elimination patterns will be. Okay? Um, psychological factors. Psychological factors are, um, and you guys don't, this is a hypothetical question, so I don't want to know this answer, and I don't expect anybody to raise their hands. But any of you go to the dorms your first year, freshman year, and you weren't able to have a bowel movement for three weeks, finally you go home to your families because you just can't handle anymore, and you're finally able to have a decent bowel movement. Again, I don't want to know. I'm just presenting that out there to you, okay? Um, we have Finch, who always had, who always had struggled with this um, at school. Some people just have to have a comfortable environment for them to be able to have a bowel movement, okay? And, and so some of those psychological factors can play a part or play a role in alterations in bowel elimination or bowel movement. Personal habits, okay? Um, personal habits are, what did I have right here? Oh, personal habits are things that are in your life that affect your ability to have a bowel movement. So what do you guys all plan on doing in less than one and a half years? Graduating, okay? And all of you plan on working as a nurse. And so you're going to get out onto your floor. You're going to be given, your, let's say you're all medical surgical nurses. You're going to be given an assignment of six to eight patients who all need something, and you're, you, you had your cup of coffee in the morning, and you're ready to have your morning bowel movement. And let me just tell you, the doctor's on your, giving you some orders, there's charts that need to be checked, there's 10 o'clock medications that need to be given out, there's food trays that people need to be fed, people need to be bathed. Do you think that you're going to be able to sit back and, and have your relaxing bowel movement without having all of those things on your mind? No. So some of your personal habits, your work schedule, things that um, you know, make you comfortable in having a, a bowel movement will, will, may not be there. Maybe your personal habits aren't conducive to having a healthy elimination pattern. Positioning. What is the position that most people can have a bowel movement in? Sitting, okay. More particularly, squatting. Okay, so squatting is the optimal position to have a bowel movement in. Something you always wanted to know, wasn't it? <laughs> now, we're all going to put our patients 
on now that they've had surgery and we're trying to get them up and get them moving we're going to put them on a, maybe a physical therapy commode that has the head of their bed to promote skin integrity to to not alter the pattern of you know the surgery that they just had we're going to put them in a commode where the the backs reclined so that they're not in an upright position and we're going to ask them to have a bowel movement or we're going to put them on a bedpan while they're lying flat and ask them to have a bowel movement if they have to it's very difficult okay if you if you don't believe me you can try it in somehow fashion in your in the privacy of your own home squatting is the optimal position for for having a bowel movement. Okay? So remember positioning positioning is key in so many things that we do, especially in in elimination patterns. Okay? Pain. This is again information that all of you will want to know. It is not supposed to be painful to have a bowel movement. Okay? A number 2 should not hurt. So, if there is pain associated with having a bowel movement, you are not having a good elimination pattern. You're not having a healthy elimination pattern. Pain can be in a bowel, you can have pain in a bowel movement for all sorts of reasons, okay? Whether there's hemorrhoids, whether there's past surgery, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get onto that in this hour. However, it's not, that is not normal. So, if somebody's having pain in a bowel movement, that's going to alter their behaviors, okay? And their behaviors, are going to produce an, an alteration in their patterns of elimination. Pregnancy. I'm telling you, the baby in the mom's belly just stops all function. Okay, the baby squashes, you know, the ability for the mom to have a full bladder, okay, and to have a, a you know, the ability to have a normal pattern of elimination in urination. It sits on the, the sigmoid colon, okay, and the sigmoid colon, if, oh, man, we got back there. The sigmoid colon is in this area right here, okay? That baby sits smack down on that, God bless you, stops all movement and is very, very difficult to pass its stool, okay? So pregnancy plays a large role, especially in the last trimester of alterations in um, elimination. Surgery. This kind of brings us back to pain. If you have to strain or if you're having to push your, your bowel movement through, um, any type of abdominal surgery, any type of surgery in general can cause you to have pain associated with that or can cause you to um, not have a good elimination pattern. Anesthesia and medications um, will slow down peristalsis. Okay, and you'll have, you'll be more predisposed to constipation and impaction, okay? Surgery can also cause you to have um, an obstruction or an ileus, okay? And those types of things will cause you to um, have an alteration in your patterns of elimination. Okay, so. Problems. Okay, we have constipation, impaction, diarrhea, incontinence, flatulence, and hemorrhoids. Okay, constipation is not a disease. It is not something that somebody is diagnosed with. Constipation is a symptom. Okay, and that symptom is usually associated with decreased bowel movement. It is associated with hard fecal matter, okay, or extremely solid fecal matter. And 
an overabundance of straining. Okay, so you know the ne uh, neck veins are popping out, and the, that vein on the top of your forehead's popping out. You're getting all red and purple to be able to get that bowel movement out. Not normal. Okay, there's a visual for you. Okay, um, one of there's many reasons for constipation. One of the ones that we see fairly often is a prolonged use of laxative. Remember, I've talked to you guys about this very much in the past. Okay, that um, overuse, not necessarily abuse, of laxatives can cause you to have um, a tolerance buildup and the, the efficacy of the laxative will not be as pertinent. Impaction, okay, impaction results from unrelieved constipation. Okay, that bowel movement just gets stuck in your bowel. Okay, that, that fecal matter just gets stuck. And what it's characterized by is a lot of times you're still producing um, fecal matter. So what will happen is the liquid or the loose bowel movement will seep around the impaction. Okay, so if you notice that your patient is starting to have like a continuous stream of just little droplets of diarrhea, which we'll talk about in a second, okay, and it's just a continuous flow of diarrhea, then, um, then you might want to start thinking to yourself, is impaction something that, that I should be looking at? Okay, the other thing is, is that the rectum can become extremely dilated in impaction. So if you're washing your patient's back and you're washing your patient's backside, um, if the person is predisposed to having constipation, it's always a good idea to just take a look back there and just make sure that, you know, our rectum is, is uh, the sphincter is tightened and that it's not dilated. Okay, dilation of the rectum can always um, make you think of impaction. Okay, so diarrhea. Diarrhea is loose bowel movement. Okay, it's liquid formed feces. And that fecal matter is, can be um, loose for a number of reasons. Most often it's because uh, there's some type of absorption problem. Okay, and what we'll see a lot of times is that the absorption problem stems from medication. Okay, so can you guys kind of see how this can start to, you know, make a 360? Okay, and you can start to see the full picture. So a person has pneumonia, is put on an antibiotic. That antibiotic causes decreased absorption. Okay, like we talked about in alteration in nutrition. Okay, that decreased absorption means that not all those nutrients and minerals and fluids were absorbed into the body. So now we have a loosened stool, hence we have diarrhea. Okay. Incontinence is your inability to control your bowel movements. Flatulence is gas accumulation. Okay. Flatulence can often cause that pain, that cramping sensation that we feel with, um, with abdominal discomfort and bowel movements. God bless you. A lot of times people feel like they have to have a bowel movement at, because they have so much pain and so much cramping going on in their abdomen. But really, it's the gas accumulation. So they might be saying to themselves, gosh, I have all this pain, I have all this cramping, uh, I must have to have a bowel movement. And you know, maybe they do an abdominal scan and they don't see any fecal matter, but they see a ton of free air. 
okay? So, or air in the bowel. So flatulence or air, gas accumulation can often cause cramping and pain. Hemorrhoids. Um, right here we have some pictures of hemorrhoids. And what um, all hemorrhoids are are engorged veins, okay? They're dilated engorged veins. They can be internal or they can be external, okay? And who in my maternity rotation had that patient with engorged hemorrhoids? Okay, Jess, can you describe to me what they looked like? Maybe a nice green grape size? Yes. Okay. So nice, two nice big green grapes external of her rectum. Now, can you imagine that must be extremely difficult to want to have a bowel movement with knowing that kind of pain that's going on there? So you can see how hemorrhoids can alter your ability to have um, a good elimination pattern, right? If those were your hemorrhoids, would you want to have a good elimination pattern? No. Okay. So, um, so they get in the way. Now this picture right here, because we didn't see any um, internal, this is a picture of a colonoscopy, right? And what's going on is, you can see this right here. Here's the, the scope, right? And what's happening is they're going into the, um, into the rectum and up the sigmoid colon and entering into the large bowel. And then the camera that's on, there's various camera spots on the scope. The camera at the top of the scope is looking down and looking at the internal hemorrhoids of the rectum. Okay? So can you guys see that that's what these look like? Okay? So they're large, dilated, engorged vessels. Okay? Painful, can cause rectal bleeding, can make people very concerned. Okay, if they can be relieved um, and decreased in size, then, you know, and they don't uh, impact your ability to have normal bowel movements or to have bowel movements that are pain-free, then, um, then they can remove them and it's called a hemorrhoidectomy. Okay, very painful procedure. I was doing good with this for so long. Okay, alterations and elimination for children. We talked about enuresis, this is encoparesis. What do you guys think encoparesis is? Question. Absolutely. Right, it, involuntary, well, I will, I will say that they can be voluntary and they can be involuntary. So voluntary or involuntary bowel movements that don't go into the potty. Okay? The other criteria for encoparesis is that this occurs in children who have already successfully completed potty training. Okay, God bless you. This doesn't count for kids who are still having accidents because they're still trying to um, be trained. It occurs in 1.3% of all children and it occurs more often in females than in males. Okay, now why, now you're probably thinking to yourself, voluntary or involuntary, what the heck does Meg mean by that? Why would a child voluntarily have a bowel movement in some other place other than in the potty? 
A number of reasons. One, maybe there's a history of abuse, and the child associates maybe pooping in their pants with getting attention or getting in some type of trouble. And so that's the behavior behind their, their action. Okay? Maybe some children um, are just not comfortable with their surroundings, and so they'd rather go into a corner, have their bowel movement, um, because they're afraid of the, of the potty and the new surroundings a lot of times when they start going to school. Another reason is some kids are just too busy to stop what they're doing and have a bowel movement. Okay, there was um, a, a mother that was at one of the, um, that came to the school nurse at one of the schools that I used to take the student, to take you guys to, and she was saying, you know, I'm really struggling. My child just won't have the bowel movement. He'll be sitting there playing video games, and I'll see him sitting there going like this. And I know he's squeezing it in, and I'm trying to tell him that he has to, when he feels like he has to go, he needs to get up and go. But he's just too busy doing whatever else he needs to be doing, being involved with the other kids to be able to have, to, you know, take time out to go have a, a bowel movement. Okay? Behavior modification, medications, dietary changes, normal, establishing a normal routine for having a bowel movement, all those things will help children um, in, in terms of getting past or treating this disease process or these symptoms. Another thing, let me go back to that real quick. Another thing is that sometimes, yes? I still have a question on that. Mm -hmm. Is that for just like normal, I guess, like bowel movements, or could that also include like a child who's given stool softener as well? Well, that's a good question. A child that's given stool softener is given stool softener because of how, how hard their stool is. Right. Okay, so if um, they increase fluids and that doesn't help, then a stool softener can also, a stool softener can lead to incontinence. Okay, okay? Um, not necessarily, you know, but you have to give some time to allow for potty training with the stool softener. Remember, encopresis is, is um, incontinence that occurs in children who have already established a normal pattern okay. and that regress back to incontinence. Okay. Mm -hmm. And she would have problems where she would be so busy playing that she would not go. So we ended up having to incorporate potty sits into like after meals. Absolutely. That's encoparesis. Okay. Now, the fact that she had a stool softener, you have to allow for training. Okay? But, she was but because she was so busy, she was establishing a voluntary, probably felt the need to have a bowel movement, decided not to adhere to that need and to just do what she needed to do, and then as a result have incontinence or have um, constipation. <laughs> Okay, and that's training, that's encopresis. So I think you have kind of two, like, okay. issues going on there. Um, but another thing that, because Laura, you brought up a really good point, is sometimes, despite fluid and despite dietary changes, children can just have um, hard fecal material. Okay, so a lot of times what families will do is they'll use a lubricant. Okay, so before we put patients on medications, we'll just use a little bit of lubricant around the rectal area to help with the, the defecation process so that children aren't put on medications and aren't feeling that, um, that straining that you know, might seem unnatural to them. Okay. So, when we have an individual who is 
reporting an alteration in their elimination pattern, we want to take a history. And anytime we take a history, we always want to establish what their baseline elimination pattern is. Okay, so we want to look at, do they go every day? Do they go once, um, once every other day? Do they go twice a day? Okay, do they usually go in the morning after their first cup of coffee? Do they usually go at night? And people, now, honest, honest to goodness, uh, you know, you're having a patient who's admitted into your unit, you're taking their, um, sometimes it's called an admission history, sometimes it's called a database, whatever it's called in your hospital, and you're asking the, the patients or their families about their elimination patterns. And they're looking at you like you have eight heads, because they're like, why does this woman care? Why does my nurse care? that I have two bowel movements that are nicely formed every day, okay? It's because we need to establish, because if we're gonna put patients on medications, if we're gonna put patients on uh, narcotics, if we're gonna put patients on, if we're gonna do any intervention, we wanna get a full history, a full understanding of what their body is used to, what their normal regulatory functions are. Okay, we want a description of the stool. We want to know if they usually have a soft stool. Do they usually have a hard stool? Do they have a formed stool? Okay, is it dark brown? Is it dark green? Is it light brown? Is it black? Does it smell? Is it malodorous? Okay, I hope you all had breakfast this morning. Okay, because you're probably not going to have lunch. Um, what is their routine? Okay, because remember, hospitals are disruptions in in every person's routine always, okay? So we want to know what their routine is. Do they usually have a cup of coffee? Does that usually get things going? Do they usually get up every morning and take their dog for a walk? And that gets things going, some mobility. Do they usually have a nice fibrous breakfast? Do they have a big uh, bowl of all bran, okay? And maybe that helps their, their systems to keep regular. Do they, do they eat like eight or nine or, I had a woman that I admitted and she needed 13 prunes, 13 prunes to be able to have normal regulatory function every day. Okay, so and, and don't give her 12 and don't give her 14, she had to have 13 prunes. So what is their normal routine in elimination? Okay, do they use artificial aids? Do they use laxatives? Do they use cathartics? Do they use, um, you know, lubricants? Okay, do they, are they on stool softeners? Those types of things. And is there a presence of a bowel diversion? What is a bowel diversion? You guys are all learning about it with Darlene right now. Ostomies. Do they have a colostomy? Do they have an ileostomy? I'm here to tell you that more than once, I received report from nurses who had no idea that the patient they admitted had a bowel diversion. Because they're asking the history form, they're saying, how often do you go? The person has a colostomy, they clean it out once a morning, they say they go once a morning. They say that it's, it's soft and that it's light brown. It might be soft and light brown, okay? So if you don't say to your patient, do you have a colostomy? Do you have an ileostomy? Do you have some type of bowel diversion? They may not know that you need to know that, okay? They might be so used to that, depending on their disease process, and, it's, and nowadays, um, the, the aesthetics of a colostomy have become so advanced that you don't necessarily know because you don't have a big bag hanging off of you, okay? Many of, of actors and stars in Hollywood have colostomies that you never even know. 
How many of you here knew Barbara Streisand's had a colostomy for years? Did anybody know that? Be honest. See, there's more trivia. That won't be a test question, but there you go. Okay? So, um, so sometimes you really need to know those pieces of information because the next thing you know is your evening shift nurse, who might be me, comes on, is washing the patient up because he or she is asking for a bath, and the next thing you know is you see this colostomy. You're like, oh, that's a good thing to know because you might have been in this hospital for two or three days taking care of yourself and your nurse never knew it. Okay? Changes in appetite. Okay, now we're getting into more of how has your alteration and elimination, if it is in fact present, changed the other parts of, of your being? Okay, have you become so constipated that you just, you can't eat anymore? Okay, or, um, you know, have, now that you've been on this antibiotic, have you had so much diarrhea that you can't eat anything? Or maybe you've just become so hungry because you're not absorbing, you just can't get enough things into you. Okay, um, you know, maybe, our, maybe we've had a patient who has been recently diagnosed with diverticulitis based on a, a, an exam, and they've completely changed their diet as a result of um, the pouching of their bowel. Okay, so have they changed, have they, are they trying to work through some comorbidities? Diet history, okay, what, what's their normal, fun, what's their normal pattern? Okay, if they're coming in with major constipation and all they eat is um, maybe meats, maybe they're on the Atkins diet. Okay, how many of you guys have ever tried or have known somebody to be on the Atkins diet? Okay, major constipation issues. Okay, so that's why these, these types of uh, histories are so important. Description of your fluid intake. Okay. How much fluid is our patient getting? How much should they be getting if they're an adult? Two liters. Two, liters. Two thousand milliliters, thank you. Do they have a history of surgery? Okay, surgeries, especially abdominal surgeries, can cause a lot of problems with our patient and their ability to have bowel elimination. Okay, surgeries for a number of reasons, not to mention bowel elimination, because if they're on narcotics, we're decreasing our peristalsis, we're you know, bringing on constipation. If we're having surgeries and somebody's on prophylactic antibiotics for a couple days after an invasive surgery, then, um, then we might be predisposing them to diarrhea, okay? History of GI illness, both chronic and acute, okay? So for example, chronic would be something like Crohn's disease, okay? So maybe our patient is has suffered from Crohn's disease or is suffering from irritable bowel syndrome. And that's a chronic type of GI illness that they suffer from, which could alter their patterns of elimination. Or perhaps it's more acute. Maybe they've just been diagnosed with colon cancer. Okay? Or maybe they've just been diagnosed with, um, you know, some type of abdominal flu or abdominal bug. Okay? Medication history. Medication history, we'll go over this, could include enemas. It could include laxatives. It can include cathartics. It can also include other things like antibiotics, narcotics, etc. Exercise patterns. Is our individual, is our patient mobile? Are they capable of getting up and moving around? Or are they immobile and we are, are struggling with uh, keeping our peristalsis going? Are they in pain? Are they uncomfortable? Remember, um, 
you know, if you, they may not say to you, I'm not going to the bathroom or I'm not having a bowel movement because it's painful to me. Okay, so you may have to just come right out and say to them, Stephanie, are you not having bowel movements because it hurts when you go? Okay, so you have to establish if they're uncomfortable or if it's painful when they have a bowel movement. Social history, is their inability to have um, regulation of their bowel movements impacting their socialization? Is it impacting their life? Okay, are they mobile? Are they capable of having exercise patterns? Or should we look into doing physical therapy, passive and aggressive um, range of motion, etc.? Okay, we have to do physical assessments. We need to look at the entire digestive system. We need to appreciate bowel sounds. We need to look at the ability of of the individual to chew and to swallow and to produce salivary enzymes. We need to make sure that our patient is using, you know, is, has an abdomen or has um, a system that is appropriate for function, for uh, absorption, okay? We had a patient who was um, a liver transplant and he was coming in because he just, he kept on having diarrhea and he just couldn't get control of it. And one of the things that um, this patient was on, because he's on so many medications, um, is something called caraphate, which helps to keep the lining in your stomach um, nice and supple. Okay? And what was happening was he was taking his caraphate in the morning and then eating his breakfast. Okay? So he was coating the lining of his stomach he was eating his breakfast and his stomach wasn't absorbing any of his medication or any of his food. Okay, so the next thing he knows is it's mid-morning, late morning and he's having diarrhea. That's because his breakfast just went right through him. Okay, so they, they were perplexed. They couldn't figure out what was going on with this. And so we want to look at the whole digestive tract. We want to look at the rectum, especially, especially in newborns. Okay, because you know, a lot of times, or not a lot of times, but it is possible for children to be born without the digestive canal finishing or the digestive tract finishing. So we always want to make sure that our, our new baby has a rectum. Okay? Fecal specimens. We want to look for blood. We want to look for bacteria. We want to look for parasites in our, in our, our stools. There are various diagnostic tests that will help us to establish alterations in bowel function. Okay, looking at our kidneys, ureter, and bladder can help us to establish uh, normal elimination patterns. Upper GIs, which look at our mouth and our esophagus and our stomach. Barium swallows to make sure that we're swallowing our food appropriately to make sure that the barium-filled food is going in and through our digestive system in an appropriate manner. Um, upper endoscopies, lower endoscopies, barium enemas, again, making sure that all of our systems from the upper down and from the lower on up are, are working. Ultrasounds to make sure that there's no obstruction, that there's no intussusceptions. Colonoscopy to actually look at the bowel tissue and make sure that it's, um, it, it's looking appropriate. And MRIs to get a better idea of um, the, a three-dimensional picture 
of our, of our digestive system. It looks for obstructions. It checks, they check for polyps. Okay? They check for impactions. Okay, again, just our basic nursing diagnoses. Um, depending on the factors that influence your patients, um, or based on your assessment, will base what you uh, will diagnose them with. If a patient is just concerned about becoming constipated and therefore going every day um, and, and straining and trying really hard because they just, you know, maybe in the past they've had constipation problems and they don't want to have it again, they might be more at risk for constipation. They might be perceiving themselves to be constipated, but after all the tests that you're doing, there's clearly no constipation. Remember, then you want to look at ideas of... Um, excuse me, what they're, they're perceiving their constipation to be. If it's pain and it's cramping, it doesn't mean that it's not normal to them or it's not identifiable to them. It just might mean that they're having problems with, let's maybe say, ga um, gas or flatulence as opposed to actual stool constipation or impaction. Okay? And body image changes. If they're really struggling with their socialization, if they're struggling with their ability to function outside in a socialized role, um, that will help or that will lead us to body image changes. We want to look at what the goals are, not only our own, but making sure that they're congruent with that of our patients. We want to set priorities that are also congruent with our patients. And we want to make sure that, um, that we continue care through the acute phase and through home care and the long-term phase as well. What are we going to do to promote good bowel function? We want to do correct sitting, okay? So either sitting in an upright position or squatting. No slouching, no slouching, or no, like, you know, resting and relaxing. No feet up, you know, you're not loving life while you're trying to have a bowel movement. Good positioning promotes optimal bowel function. Okay, provide privacy. Nobody wants to try and have a bowel movement with a crowd. Do any of you want to, you know? Nobody wants to have a bowel movement in the crowd. So um, you always want to make sure that you're promoting privacy, especially if it's in a patient that's in a double, a double room, um, you know, where they can't get up and go to the bathroom anyway. So, you know, they're in this bedpan or they're on this um, bedside commode. There's patients because it's right in the nurse's station. If you're refusing to shut the door, there's people walking all up and down the hall the hallways, there's the person and there are four family members in the, right into the curtain next to you. Very difficult. Okay, so you want to try as much as you can to promote privacy. Um, offer a bedpan often. Okay, it's, if you cannot get a patient out to a bedside commode um, and you must, for whatever reason, have them on the bedpan, offer it often and place the, position, the patient's position on the bed as, as close to a sitting position as you can. And also medications. Medications which include all of these right here. Okay? We've kind of already talked cathartics and laxatives into the ground. Okay? Those are things that you can get over the counter. Those are also prescribed. Okay? Antidiarrheals, again, you can buy over the counter.